I think a light has been shown on data, especially at the at the state level. So, you know, I, I don't think ever in our history I can recall a time where governors were standing up in press conferences and not only using charts and data on a daily basis, but actually using data to make decisions in, in basically real time. From Tyler Technologies, it's the Tyler Tech Podcast, where we talk about issues facing communities today and highlight the people, places, and technology making a difference. I'm your host, Jeff Harrell. I'm the Director of Content Marketing for Tyler, and I'm so glad that you've joined me. Well, with the American Rescue Plan now passed, many are looking at the best use of those funds to strengthen government for both short and long-term success. Well, today we look at how those funds might be used to support data infrastructure and turn to an external subject matter expert, Tyler Claycamp. Tyler is a fellow at the Georgetown University's Beck Center for Social Impact and Innovation and director of the State Chief Data Officers Network. Tyler was the state of Connecticut's first chief data officer and one of the first state data officers in the nation. A geographer by training, most of Tyler's career has been in Connecticut state government, including positions with the Department of Public Health, Office of Policy and Management, and the government's office. In his role as CDO, Tyler led Connecticut's efforts to use data to enhance the efficiency and effectiveness of state programs, policies, and services. Tyler was named a Data and IT Innovator by Route 50, and in 2019, Tyler was named one of Government Technology's Top 25 Doers, Dreamers, and Drivers. Today, Tyler brings us his five reasons to use the American Rescue Plan funds to support data infrastructure. Excited to hear his list. Here's my conversation with Tyler Claycamp. Well, Tyler, thanks so much again for joining us. And I know you're a fellow at the Beck Center for Social Impact and Innovation at Georgetown University. And I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about the work that you do there. Sure. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, the, the Beck Center really focuses on changing institutions for the betterment of public services and institutions could mean anything from governments to financial institutions or even things like uh, universities. And we, we sort of focus on three areas, which are data, building the capacity, so the, the workforce, people working in public interest technology, uh, and then really sort of like the, the technological infrastructure around things like improving the way we, we might deliver public services or benefits to people. And so we have a variety of, of projects going on within the center. My specific area is really focused on working with state chief data officers through the state CDO network and uh, with a heavy emphasis on how states can leverage data to really drive the way they make policy or, or deliver services. And so really what we're looking to do is there's a lot of the sort of core data infrastructure and capacity that states are really just scratching the surface on. And so we support CDOs and their work in just sort of establishing some of those foundational pieces, but with sort of a long-term vision of then applying that work within specific public policy or, or service delivery areas, especially where states are uniquely positioned, either from a policymaking perspective, or maybe it's just from, from the data that they have. And so each 
whether it's improving public education or reducing opioid-related overdoses, that's really the area where we want to we take data to, to support states. I'm interested in that, that first one you mentioned, the, the workforce. Back when I went to college, back in the late 80s, early 90s, there, there weren't a lot of majors in, you know, in data and the kind of positions that you could, you could have in the workforce. Are you working with universities to help them come up with curriculum and, and different majors to help supply that workforce? Um, that's certainly part of it. So right now we're working, so there's a place called the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown, where we're doing some work with them to introduce public interest technology uh, into their curriculum or even some of their more like uh, senior executive training programs. But then also even the people that are sort of currently working in the field, the, the, the idea of public interest technology is kind of a new term, I guess. And so there are people who actually are doing this work today, maybe not necessarily even recognizing that they're part of a broader community of public interest technologists. So part of it is even just kind of understanding the landscape of the work and who's out there doing what. Well, I'm excited about our conversation today because we're going to talk about five reasons to use the American Rescue Plan funds to support data infrastructure. I know this is a topic that you have a lot of passion about and so excited to hear your your five reasons. Let's just dive right in. Tyler, what's your first reason for using the American Rescue Plan funds to support data infrastructure? We really want to recover uh, in a way that is, is informed. States especially, but also even local government and the federal government have really a unique opportunity to leverage data to help to help them better understand the decisions that they might be making from whether it's a policy perspective or budgeting perspective to make sure that as we implement different types of programs or interventions that are designed to sort of re rebuild our economy, we have this sort of untapped resource in states that that can drive better decision making or or delivery of programs and and so as like an example. You know, when the federal government rolled out the, the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, that was really uh, implementation of a, a support program, which is here are the broad criteria that have to be met and then go and apply for assistance, right? And so as we saw through the rollout of that program, you know, there were groups like, I think there was an NBA basketball team who may have received a paycheck protection loan and others. And so the maybe the individuals or the small businesses uh, that were in some of the most heavily impacted areas, you know, might have been passed over or didn't quite know, you know, where to go to get the assistance. And so if we had really kind of leveraged data to look at businesses that started laying off employees or locations of maybe businesses that were closing as a result of the, the, the pandemic, we could have really targeted those types of assistance to neighborhoods or sectors of the economy um, that were being maybe more disproportionately impacted rather than just kind of broadly rolling out, you know, these programs. So, that's a, a really unique opportunity at this point because ideally we start to truly enter this this recovery phase here in the next couple of months. And so, especially with now an influx additional capital into states that have been budget, you know, are, are strapped from a budget perspective, you know, they can certainly use this funding to set up 
not only the technical infrastructure, but even the, the sort of people infrastructure necessary to leverage data in this way. I love that, that nuance because you think about recovery, you hear the word recovery a lot, but informed recovery, you don't really think about. So making sure that you have the information you need to apply the funds in the right places, that, that that's a really unique look at it. I really like that. And by the way, for the listeners, I will add these five reasons in the show notes. So if you're following along, I will, I will add that in the show notes uh, for your information as well. So that's great. So it's necessary for informed recovery. What's the second reason? It's vital for an equitable recovery as well. And so, you know, again, I think as we've seen throughout the course of the last year, the, the pandemic has disproportionately impacted communities of color, areas of higher degrees of poverty, certain sectors of the workforce. And so we, we really have an opportunity now as we really look to support individuals that are, say, you know, on maybe a SNAP program like the food assistance program. How can we, we can leverage data to better connect those individuals with new opportunities, say, in, in the workplace or in the workforce to, to really target the efforts to those that have that have really been disproportionately impacted by this. And it could be things like ensuring that, uh, you know, as we lift eviction and foreclosure moratoria, that we are then targeting communities for things like rental assistance or, or other types of housing programs in, in those areas to make sure that, you know, ultimately, you know, we hear the term build back better. And that means not just returning to the place where we were, where certain parts of our society have been historically overlooked, we now have an opportunity to make sure that you know everybody gets the fair shot to recover. These are ways that we can support people that have been especially hard hit as a result of where they live, the zip code that they live in, what their what their job is moving forward. And the the key to this is really we need high quality data infrastructure. And that's the technology and the people that know how to really pull together and integrate data across these disparate systems and really analyze it to make sure that not only we spend money, that it's going to those communities that have been uh, most significantly impacted, but that it's also being done in a way that's sort of elevating these programs in through an equity lens to make sure that it's not just the financial assistance, but the programs and policies that we're putting in place moving forward uh, are truly lifting people up out of poverty. This is great, Tyler. You, the first one was informed recovery. The second one was equitable recovery. You just hinted at the third one, but what's the third reason to use the funds for? Yeah, data? absolutely. We, we need a more modern digital infrastructure in the in this country. And it's not just the data infrastructure. I, I think we've seen the the overall digital infrastructure really struggle, whether it was the the unemployment insurance systems across states or even Medicaid applications, SNAP applications, those programs, you know, really struggled uh, under the increased need need to access those systems. And it, it takes a significant investment to totally overhaul all of those systems. But we can, one, start with the data infrastructure, because what we were seeing, at least at the state level, was the difficulty in integrating data across these different systems. So even early on during the pandemic, it was really difficult for states to understand hospital capacity. So states could know maybe how many people 
were hospitalized, but it was very difficult for them to actually have the denominator there. So they didn't necessarily know what the actual capacity of the hospital is. So if a hospital reports they have 100 people in there, they could still have 100 additional beds available, and states really struggled to do that. So this is an opportunity at a relatively low cost to do so, to to put that data infrastructure in place that can help us integrate across these different systems that will then make those, you know, whether it's the benefit systems or so people don't have to enter in their information in 10 different places in order to see what kind of benefits they qualify for. That's the potential that exists here uh, to deliver services better moving forward. And Tyler, just to camp on this one a little bit more, other than funding, is there other barriers that keeps governments from moving towards a modern digital infrastructure? Well, there's many challenges. I think the the first typically is the procurement process in states. And so we're really, the way states have approached procurement has been these large, significant contracts that go, you know, where all the needs are supposed to be defined up front. The term is typically called waterfall because from a procurement perspective, we think we're buying a product but in most cases, what we're actually buying are services. So it's the time of the software developers, and then states on their side need to obviously be more engaged in the de- development of these digital tools along the way. I think the other part are our legal challenges. So as we talk about, especially integrating data across different programs, generally each one of those programs has some type of law that says who you are and are not allowed to share data with and in what capacity. And it can be really challenging because the Family Education Rights and Privacy Act has its own sort of set of standards. HIPAA has another set of standards. And so kind of figuring out what the sweet spot in the laws are that enable sharing of that type of data can be really challenging. And a lot of states just simply don't have, you know, sort of the legal support necessary, say, with it that's that's trying to integrate data across systems. So most of these attorneys are thinking... This is administered by the agency that I work for. I'm here to keep them out of trouble. And the easiest way to do that is to be extremely conservative when interpreting laws. And so having an attorney whose job it is is to actually figure out how to share data uh, would also be a significant step for states. So we've talked about three reasons. What's the fourth reason to use these funds to support data infrastructure? Basically setting up your setting up your state for success moving forward into the future. So the putting this infrastructure in place now doesn't, you know, doesn't doesn't go away, right? So it, it puts you in a position, you know, to continue leveraging and inter- integrating data 10, 15 years down down the line, obviously if you if you do it well, because one, you can use sort of this upfront influx of funding to get that initial capacity stood up, which is typically the most significant cost. And then it's really keeping keeping up with the maintenance and upkeep um, moving forward. You know, I'll go back in, in 2009 during the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, the Obama administration basically authorized states to do to to leverage a very small percentage of the funding that they came in that came into to those programs to establish the capacity to do the reporting and administration necessary or required under that the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. And so when I worked in Connecticut, we leveraged that for a variety of things. But one of the things we did was set up some data infrastructure 
that would allow us to pull together the different reports and measures from agencies as well as the the spending aspects of it. And when we put that technology in place, it was actually the, the sort of precursor for a broader business intelligence tool that was put in on top of the state's financial information that's going that, that's still up and operational and in, in use today. So that same type of thing can be done here in states, and it's a great way as well to have a have a place to start that you can grow from. So th- that's sort of the idea. Is like, look, states, local government, you're getting some additional funding and a very small percentage of what you're going to get out of that if it's applied towards putting some data infrastructure in place is going to pay dividends down the road. And just as another example, in Indiana, through their management and performance hub, and they're a fairly mature data organization, but the the return on investment for them has been four to one. So they're they're returning $4 for every $1 they've invested in that platform. And so the the business case is right there for states uh, to, to run with. Tyler, I know you said that that investing in data infrastructure allows you to use data-driven problem solving. Tell us a little bit more about what that means. Yeah, so just in the same way, you know, we might be looking to say through the recovery process, well, how can we, you know, prevent homelessness or resolve homelessness by integrating data across these different sectors, you know, you can use that same approach to, you know, down the road, I think, address housing and, you know, housing issues that aren't specifically related to recovery. So maybe it's a lack of affordable housing or a lack of access to housing. Maybe it's that homeless individuals are also receiving a variety of different state services. And so, that sets you up down the road to be able to integrate data across those systems to just better deliver those those types of services. Or even, you know, as we talk about supporting small businesses, again, this governments do all types of sort of small business support programs, whether it's loans, grants, that type of thing. So these are all sort of challenges that if states are leveraging data to address them today, they'll just be set up to do similar things moving forward. All right. So Tyler, bring us home. This is our last of the five reasons. It's an investment in both short and long-term success. So um, sort of reiterating the, the trailing end of my point before is the ability to share and integrate data across a variety of programs, I think it's something you know, most people that work in government agree needs to be done. And if you, one, focus on some recovery-related use cases, right, it, it helps you better serve your residents. It helps you make better decisions now. And, and it really lays the groundwork for, you know, the culture and the ability to do this moving forward. And so, as they say, like, never let a good crisis go to waste type of <laughs> statement. I think there's a real opportunity here for governments who, I think a light has been shown on data, especially at the at the state level. So, you know, I, I don't think ever in our history, I can recall a time where governors were standing up in press conferences and not only using charts and data on a daily basis, but actually using data to make decisions in, in basically real time, right? So as case numbers change, right, govern, governors decided whether to shut things down, whether to reopen things as, you know, we started to learn more about the impacts of the pandemic. We started to see shifting 
you know, policies and, and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I think now as that type of activity hopefully will continue, right, and, and putting that infrastructure in place, not only help them to make improvements in their decisions as, as we progress through recovery, but ideally these things really take hold in government and allow states and local governments just to simply keep doing this into the future and, and grow. And we've seen most of the successful efforts where we're seeing this in maybe more mature governments always start with some type of high priority use case. And then when they've generated success in there, they're able to scale that into other aspects of, of their work. And so this is a really good opportunity to say, okay, we're gonna focus on these recovery related use cases with an eye towards kind of growing our capacity into the future to do this for improving traffic safety or making licensing requirements less burdensome on people. Yeah, this has been very enlightening. Tyler, I'm going to run through the, the five real quick and then and we'll see if you have any, any parting thoughts for us. But the first reason was it's necessary for informed recovery. Two, it's vital for equitable recovery. Three, it builds a modern digital infrastructure it allows for future data-driven problem solving. And then finally, it's an investment in both short and long-term success. Tyler, any additional thoughts, any parting thoughts for us? Sure, so I'll just say that when, when we talk about this being an investment, it's not a significant investment when you look at the amount of funding that's coming to state and local government. So if state governments in particular allocated one half of 1% of the funding that they got or that they are to receive, that would be a significant boost to developing this capacity. So for example, if a state were to receive $1 billion, which is less than most states will be receiving, I believe, one half of 1% of that is $5 million. Um, I hope I did my math correctly there. <laughs> um, it's basically allocating a rounding error of the federal funding that there to receive to setting up some data infrastructure. Well, Tyler, if someone wanted to connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Sure. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at T Claycamp, or uh, you can just email me at tyler.claycamp at georgetown.edu. Awesome, Tyler. Well, thanks so much for your insight. This has been very informative. Really appreciate your time. And thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you, Tyler, for your expertise and insight. And as I mentioned, I will add the five reasons in the show notes of this episode. And remember, we have new podcast episodes dropping every other Monday, so please subscribe. Again, this is Jeff Harrell for Tyler Technologies. Thanks again for joining me. We'll talk to you soon.